This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Hello, all. This is, uh, in fact, Mike Usim, and you're listening to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, where we are here on the faculty. I am your host tonight, and I'm going to be working here with my good friend and the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program, Anne Greenhall. Anne, good to be in the studio with you tonight. Uh-huh. How, how are you doing? I'm great, Mike, and it's always wonderful to be here with you. Of course, we're missing Jeff. We're missing Jeff, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best to fill that very exactly. important set of shoes. <laughs> uh, uh, and let me uh, just Please. reference very quickly who we're going to have on our show tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking with Chris Whipple, who is the author of a book, Listen carefully to the title, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. Mm. And for that book, Anne, he interviewed uh, 17 chiefs of staff who were still alive going uh, back quite a way, uh, quite a ways back uh, with uh, a number of different presidencies. Uh, And he's also spoken with a couple former presidents about how they worked with Mm. their chief of staff. So it's all about leadership. Mm -hmm. Second hour, our guest is going to be Dan Fabricant, who is executive director and chief executive officer of the Natural Products Association, which is the country's largest and oldest trade association that worries and represents, worries about and represents the natural products industry. Before NPA, Dan was with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Administration, the FDA. So with that, I'm going to welcome our first guest. Uh, Chris, great, really great to have you on the program here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And Chris, as Ann and I came into the studio, we're just reflecting on the fact that we've gotten uh, through your book. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's great, extremely instructive, right. and really all about how people lead, not just directly, but in this case, through a chief of staff. So just to get us going, for uh, listeners who kind of know that phrase but don't know exactly what does a chief of staff, now John Kelly for President Obama, uh, uh, President Trump, um, what exactly does a chief of staff do? How do you define the role? And then we're going to get into a couple of the detailed portraits that you do make Mm -hmm. of the chiefs of staff uh, for President Obama going all the way back to President Richard Nixon. So, Chris, what exactly is a chief of staff? Well, you know, the extraordinary thing about it is that there's nothing in the Constitution about a White House chief of staff. He's unelected and unconfirmed, hired and fired by the president alone. And yet, since the days of Richard Nixon and his uh, famous chief, H.R. Bob Haldeman, um, every president learns sometimes the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief of staff as first among equals in the White House to do a number of things. Famously, the White House chief is the gatekeeper, which really means giving the president time and space to think. He's the honest broker of information, meaning that every decision is teed up with information on every side of of that decision, Mm -hmm. and also making sure that only the toughest decisions get into the Oval Office. He's the heat shield, as Don Rumsfeld called the chief, or the javelin catcher, as Jack Watson once called him, um, you know, taking, uh, absorbing all the criticism that comes the president's way. At the end of the day, the White House chief is the person who executes the president's agenda. And 
perhaps most importantly, he's the person who tells the president what he does not want to hear. That's a critical responsibility for every chief. Chris, that's great. And let me pick up on the latter thought uh, for just a minute or two. As President Trump makes a decision, I think from what you've just said, and it certainly is in your book as well, the first person who has to think about executing that decision, bringing it to life, is going to be the chief of staff. With that said, let's um, walk into the Oval Office. It's around 8 o'clock this morning. And just uh, take us through what, obviously, we don't know what happened in particular today, but what, what's just the flow of the of the people into the Oval Office? How, what role does the chief of staff play? And I guess the underlying question is, the, is the chief of staff there pretty much for every meeting during mm-hmm. the day? What do you think? Well, first of all, it's it's the most relentless, thankless, uh, most grueling job you can possibly imagine. You know, Dick Cheney, who was uh, Jerry Ford's 34-year-old White House chief of staff back in the 70s, uh, blamed the job for triggering his first heart attack mm-hmm. a few mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Daley, who was uh, Barack Obama's second White House chief, uh, came down with the shingles mm-hmm. shortly after taking the job. It's it's relentless. Uh, it's brutal. It begins, you know, somewhere around four o'clock in the morning. Um, very often the chief will have been awakened in the middle of the night to deal with some crisis, something, as Rahm Emanuel put it, something bad happening somewhere around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 3 a.m. phone call doesn't go to the president, it goes to the chief. So <clears throat> you begin in the morning with a early staff meeting, probably around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. There's a there's a staff meeting, then there's a senior staff meeting following that. Uh, then there's uh, in, it, then it's into the Oval Office to meet with the president. Often the White House chief is there for the, the CIA's presidential daily brief. Um, then, you know, there's a, the, the chief is responsible not only for being the gatekeeper and making sure that only the people who belong in the Oval Office are there for every meeting, uh, but he's also the person who has to be have one uh, eye on Capitol Hill. You have you have to be able to count votes. Um, this White House has been inept at counting votes, and and may even find a way to blow up uh, the tax cut bill before we're done. Uh, we'll see. Mm. But um, you know the job description. The the day is relentless. It's grueling. It's virtually 24-7, and, um, you know, again, that's because somebody has to, as as Dick Cheney put it to me, um, when there's a really difficult decision, a really difficult Mm. message that has to be taken to the president, you can't have eight or nine guys sitting around saying, it's your turn to do it. No, Mm -hmm. it's your turn. No, it's your turn. (laughs) Um, I thought that was one of the best descriptions I've been given about why one guy, one person, and someday there will be a woman in that job, uh, but one person has to be the person to execute the agenda and tell the president what he does not want to hear. And Chris, uh, one more question for me, then we're going to get Anne into the discussion. In terms of that just uh, kind of unrelenting flow of tough decisions, I love the quote that you got near the front of the book from <laughs> Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff, of course, for Barack Obama, now the mayor of Chicago. Here's the quote. If it's between good and bad, somebody else will deal with it. 
everything that gets into the Oval Office is between bad and worse. So <laughs> pick exactly up on that. Right. So what, what do you mean by that? I think I know what you, I think I know what you mean. We well, give us an example and maybe stretch it out a bit. Well, you know the the, the easy decisions. Um, you know that the, one way of putting it is that the the most valuable thing any administration has is the president's time. You know, it, it, that's the absolutely the most valuable thing that, um, that that any presidency has. You have to be sure that only the most difficult decisions get into the president. You can't have him making uh, routine decisions. You know, Jerry Ford once had, and this was one of the, by the way, this was one of the problems with the first nine months of the Trump administration. You cannot run the White House the way you run a Manhattan real estate firm. Hmm. With people coming and going, and no no chain of command, and nobody empowered uh, to make sure that that it's the the operation is disciplined. Jerry Ford had a similar setup in the beginning. He he called it the spokes of the wheel, with with the president at the center, meaning that he had all of his advisors coming and going with equal access. Well, he compared it to drinking from a fire hose. Hmm. And within a month, he was begging his old pal Don Rumsfeld to quit his job as ambassador to NATO and come in and whip his White House into shape, which Rumsfeld did uh, with help from a, a, a kid named Dick Cheney uh, as his deputy. And, and they really turned the White House around. So <clears throat> it's um, – I, I maybe digressed from your original question, but um, – you know, it's you just can't. It's hard to overstate the importance of the White House chief in bringing discipline to the to the presidency. And Chris, just to wrap that up, on this reference at the end of Rahm Emanuel's statement, uh, he deals with what is between bad and worse. It's such, I think, a almost a metaphorical statement for people in high office. The easier decisions get made by somebody else. It's only the ones people around and below you can't make. And I think that's the job mm -hmm. of the chief of staff to ensure that those get in for the president to resolve. Is that well, a fair to quote somebody else, uh, nobody knew how complicated health care could be, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, only the tough decisions should be getting into the Oval Office. And, uh, you know, alas, we have a president who uh, who has difficulty with, with some of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Anne. Oh, well, Chris, first of all, it's really such a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm really enjoying your your book. And I appreciate that Thank Mike you. started with a quote. I'm, I'm going to uh, begin with another. At the end of your introduction, you have this wonderful last paragraph. In the winter of 1968, after one of the most bitterly contested election campaigns in American history, Richard Nixon hunkered down in, in the hotel suite in New York City he had gone there to plan his presidency and to get even with his enemies. With him was a man Nixon called his pluperfect son of a bitch and Lord High hmm. Executioner, the man who would become the first truly modern White House chief of staff. So my question to you is could you help uh, us our, and our listeners understand why was he the first modern what were the, what were the circumstances that well, allowed course, for this? Of course, you're you're referring to H.R. Uh, Bob Haldeman, exactly. who became Richard Nixon's infamous White House Chief of Staff, and, right? And famously was was Nixon's son of a bitch. Hmm. Um, you know, Haldeman is a fantastic story that I tell in the book, and and the the great irony of of H.R. Haldeman 
is that on the one hand, he went to prison for the greatest political scandal in American history, Watergate. And yet, on the other hand, he is the guy who really created the template for the modern empowered White House chief of staff, as we as we now understand mm-hmm. that role. And it began, you know, Eisenhower had a famous chief named Sherman Adams, who was a gruff gatekeeper. But Haldeman took it to another level with Nixon's blessing. And, mm-hmm. and what Haldeman did was he created this multifaceted role uh, that I described before. It begins with being the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm creating time and space for the president. But it's also the person who is the so-called honest broker of information. It's also the person who is in charge of communications, in charge of speech writing, making sure that everybody is on the same page. Uh, The person who executes the president's agenda, and at the end of the day, most importantly, uh, telling the president what he does not want to hear. And in Haldeman's case... That was his great failure uh, during the Watergate cover-up. And Haldeman failed to tell Nixon hard truths, and the result was uh, the bad end that they came to with Watergate. Chris, I'm going to break in for a second and just remind our listeners, as this is, of course, Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. We're here with uh, my good friend, Ann Greenhall, and we're speaking with Chris Whipple, author of The Gatekeepers. Mm, very good. Well, I so appreciate that. So it's not the case that other that previous presidents did not have chief of staffs of sort. It's really that Haldeman was the one who uh, brought this to a new level, provided the template, as you say, for that's, the modern. That's, that's right. They, you know, he and, he and Nixon really took it to another level, and as I say, you could you could go back to Sherman Adams under Eisenhower, who was mm-hmm. the sort of civilian version of Ike's uh, Army Chief of Staff. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people would say he was the first "quote unquote" um, Chief of Staff. But I began with with Haldeman as the as the as my case study because I think that he really wrote the book on mm-hmm. on the modern White House Chief and. If you talk to his successors, um, Dick Cheney, uh, mm-hmm. and and others will tell you that um, they 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 ran into Haldeman years later at a conference in San Diego, after he'd been in prison and mm-hmm. been released, and they were all in awe of Haldeman's command of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the guy who wrote the template. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one more follow up, and then uh, back to Mike. Uh, do you see that move to the modern chief of staff as a way of professionalizing the office or making it more businesslike? I do, and I and I think that you know, people sometimes ask me if the White House chief is so important, um, if he is the person, and someday, of course, she will be the person. But if if he's the person who um, it helps the president to to execute his mm-hmm. agenda. Um, should that person be confirmed? Uh, should that person should this be uh, you know an appointed position with no accountability? And and I think the answer is is yes. Mm-hmm. And I and I think I think in part because you know he the, the chief serves at the pleasure of the president. He's he's really an extension of the president, mm-hmm. and the chief is the person who makes it possible for the president to, to mm. govern effectively. 
you know, a lot of CEOs, uh, I presume, would 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 tell you that you have to have uh, an effective COO exactly. to, uh, right. to 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 be efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, presidents need a chief of staff to execute their agenda, and I think that because the because the chief reports to the president, mm-hmm. and really it, it really is an extension of the president, never makes decisions. Uh, on his own, I think that um, it's it's appropriate for that to be in a point of position. Very good. Well, Chris, thank you for that comment because uh, Mike and I had the pleasure of interviewing a faculty member named Bennett who's written a book about chief operating officers, and the subtitle is Riding Shotgun. And a number of the ways in which you describe the template uh, resonate with one way of being the chief operating officer in you know in an organization so i appreciate your drawing that parallel mike yeah you know it's 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 been it's been extraordinary to what you know it's it's shocking to me still that nobody beat me to this book hmm. uh, that nobody <laughs> that nobody thought of doing a history of the white house chiefs of staff when you think think about the fact think think about how important and consequential the position is, but it resonated, and not, you know, to my, of course, delight and surprise, it the book wound up on the bestseller list, mm-hmm. uh, and and we, I also found myself uh, in in demand uh, with with White House chief of sta- chiefs of staff uh, mm-hmm. at various uh, various uh, speaking engagements uh, for CEOs and right. and leadership programs and. The reception has been just amazing um, mm-hmm. because these guys, it's an extraordinary fraternity, and there are real lessons mm-hmm. that can be applied from the Oval Office to the mm-hmm. corner office. And uh, listeners, <laughs> if you've you. got a question on this, if you this is a great moment. If you've always wondered what exactly does a chief of staff do and how do they operate, you're talking to an authority, of course, mm-hmm. on this. So give us a call. We're at 844-942-7866 if you'd like to ask Chris Whipple a question here. Chris, here's my question to get that kind of dialogue, hopefully, with some of our listeners going as well. We've got nine chapters in mm-hmm. the book, each of them focused on one of our presidents, beginning with Richard Nixon, concluding with, of course, Barack Obama. And the title for the first chapter, The Lord High Executioner, of course, is about Bob Haldeman. You've already described that in his work with Richard Nixon. The final chapter on the presidency of Barack Obama features a quote that we've already had on the mm-hmm. air between bad and worse. Here's my question. You've got, uh, as we said at the outset, uh, interviews with the 17 living chiefs of staff uh, on what they did. If you wouldn't mind just picking out one who, for you, was most exemplary of what a chief of staff ought to be doing, who would you single out? You know, I, I, I'd probably have to single out James A. Baker III under Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, Leon Panetta is also, uh, who was Bill Clinton's second White House chief of staff, uh, who really turned the Clinton White House around, in my in my view, would be in the same league. But... I think most people would tell you that Jim Baker was the most effective White House Chief of Staff in the modern era. And one of the reasons is that he was a guy, Ronald Reagan, first of all, let me let me just give you a quick comparison. Jimmy Carter was arguably the most intelligent president of the 20th century. He was trained as a nuclear engineer. Right. He thought he was he was thought he was so smart that he could run the White House by himself mm. without a White House Chief of Staff. 
and ultimately wound up uh, learned that he had to appoint Hamilton Jordan. Well, Ronald Reagan was once unfairly described as an amiable dunce, <laughs> yes. but Reagan intuited something that Jimmy Carter never understood and that Donald Trump did not understand, and that is that an outsider president needs a consummate insider to get things done on Capitol Hill. Reagan had the courage to pick a guy who had run the campaigns of his arch rivals, uh, George H.W. Bush and Jerry Ford before that. And yet he chose Baker because, with with a big nudge from Nancy Reagan, uh, he chose Jim Baker because Baker was a guy who knew Capitol Hill. He'd been around the block. He had White House experience. He was a smooth-as-silk Texas attorney who was comfortable in his own skin. And Jim Baker could walk into the Oval Office, close the door behind him, and tell Ronald Reagan, Mr. President, respectfully, you cannot go down this road, and here are the reasons. Um, Baker, I think, really, there would have been no Reagan revolution without Jim Baker. Hmm. Mm. Boy, so good. Let me follow up on that from just our conversation and from uh, reading your book. It seems to me that in each of the vignettes, uh, there's almost a tragic flaw, (laughs) either in the president or in the chief of staff. So uh, would you say that's true from your your recounting of these histories? Um, I'm not sure. Not sure I I completely understand the question, but I I think that you know, let me just say, I mean, one of the things that struck me uh, in, in researching this book still strikes me uh, as as amazing is that, you know, in, in Hollywood, they say that nobody knows anything. Uh, in Washington, you could say that nobody learns anything. Mm-hmm. Presidents make the same mistake time and time and time again. And the mistake is often thinking that they can run the White House by themselves. So, you know, the presidents come in uh, full of hubris, uh, intoxicated by their election victory. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they mm-hmm. make the mistake of thinking that governing is the same thing as campaigning. And it never ends well. Um, as I say, every president learns often the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief to do all of the things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. But another thing that presidents have to learn is that governing is completely different from campaigning. Campaigning, you obliterate your opponent. Mm -hmm. As Ken Duberstein, Ronald Reagan's last chief of staff, put it, when you're governing, you have to make love to your opponents. You have to build coalitions. You have to expand beyond your base. One thing that Donald Trump shows absolutely no sign of ha- of having learned is that you cannot govern the way you campaign and get anything done. And the first year is, is just proof of that. Uh, this is a White House that for, for nine months was completely broken and couldn't do anything right. And it's not clear that they've really learned anything about how to govern. Chris, we're coming to a short station break. I'd like you to hold that thought, and as we return, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about 
the extent to which this model of having a very strong number two person working intimately with you, the chief of staff, ought to be looked at and maybe even emulated elsewhere. For reasons I'll explain when we come back in a couple of minutes, you know a lot about the CIA. So if you wouldn't mind thinking about does the uh, director of the CIA need a chief of staff? And what about the, the CEO of a hospital or a community group? So we'll come back to that in our dialogue here with Chris Whipple. Saying all that, uh, I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. We are speaking with Chris Whipple about his great book, The Gatekeepers. You're listening to Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Stick around. We will be back. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion Welcome back, everybody. That was a good segue to where <laughs> yes. we're coming from and where <laughs> right. we're going. This is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this evening, Mike Yuseem. I'm with Ann Greenhall. Uh, and we're with the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. We've been speaking with Chris Whipple, author of, here's the title of his recent book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And Chris, as I anticipated just before the break, got a question now about taking some of what you have seen in the White House and asking a question, should most people who hold the, the top perch uh, the director of a hospital, the CEO of a foundation, a university president, uh, think about having a chief of staff or the equivalent. And I'm going to get you to speak uh, about another terrain you know extremely well, and that is uh, national intelligence. And you've got a film, it's on Showtime, called The Spy Masters, CIA in the Crosshairs. And for that, I know you interviewed a whole lot of people including 12 living CIA directors about how that agency is run. So, Chris, back to the main question. To what extent is the chief of staff model a model for any organization? You know, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I, I do know that having been around the country uh, with White House chiefs uh, speaking in front of uh, groups of CEOs and uh, in corporate leadership, leadership mm. programs, uh, it, the message has really resonated uh, with them, and 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 I think that um, I I am not an expert on 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 business or corporate management, um, but I as you say my my day job is as a filmmaker, and I I did interview all the living white uh, all the living uh, directors of Central Intelligence. I'd love to get back to them um, now that you've mm. mentioned it, and 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 put that question to them. But I do think. The answer is that um, y- you know most most executives, I think, do need a strong number two who can execute their agenda. And I, Erskine Bowles is a great example of somebody who was a, a, a first-rate entrepreneur. I mean, uh, very very successful in the business world, uh, and a and a superlative White House chief of staff. He succeeded. Leon Panetta as Bill Clinton's White House Chief of Staff, and and was able to work with uh, Newt Gingrich and and balance budgets and and get a lot of stuff done. And you know, Chiefs of Staff not only 
sometimes save presidents mm-hmm. from themselves uh, by telling them hard truths, but they can, but they also help help presidents to govern. And Bowles was a great example of that. He 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 told me a story about. It. He said. You know, almost every other day, Bill Clinton would come out of the Oval Office with a thousand great ideas. And I'd grab him and I'd turn him around and I'd walk him back into the Oval Office and sit him down and say, Mr. President, you and I agreed that there were three or four things you wanted to get done. And a guy with a thousand ideas is no better than a dummy like me. Uh, who has no vision. But if you stick to the three or four things we agreed you wanted to get done, I can supply the management organization and focus to get them done. But you can't do a thousand things. Yep. And that's what, that's what a good White House chief of staff will do. And I would think that applies in the business world as well. So, Chris, just to put that, I guess, in my words as a model, if you yourself, for the kind of work you do, wanted a great number two, see if this sounds right. You want a person who can manage the upward flow of people and ideas and policies and proposals. And then number two, equally important, you want to manage the downward flow of the top person's intent. You've got to execute, build uh, results. And so it's really a, is it not a, a, a two-way flow? And I think a couple of your examples in the book were people who were very good at taking things up but not executing down, or in the case of Bob Haldeman, uh, not taking a whole lot up, uh, yeah. and he yeah. should have done no so. No question about it. I, I, I completely agree with what you just said, that analysis. And I, you, you have to be able to manage up, and you have to be able to manage down, and you have to be able to execute once the president has decided. You know, Rahm Emanuel and Barack Obama were an odd couple. You know, no drama Obama <laughs> and Rahm Emanuel, of all people. Uh, and they had knockdown, drag-out arguments, fights over health care. Rahm Emanuel had been burned in the Clinton White House uh, on, on Hillary Clinton's white uh, health care proposals and wanted to go with a much more modest um, plan. But when Barack Obama decided to go for uh, Obamacare, uh, he saluted and he came in, as he put it to me, came in uh, during his son's bar mitzvah and started working the phones from the Oval Office, and he got it done. Um, imperfect, uh, ugly, messy as it was, um, he got it done. So I think that, um, you know, we another story I tell in the book is uh, Dennis McDonough and the toughest day of his career when he had to take that short walk from his office into the Oval Office felt like the longest walk ever the day he went in to tell Barack Obama that healthcare.gov was mm. not working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he took complete responsibility for it. It was all on Dennis McDonough. Um, and that's those are the kinds of, that's why I say in the book that the White House Chief of Staff can make the difference between success and disaster for every presidency. Chris, maybe let me follow up on that. Uh, you've really made clear aspects of the role. Gatekeeping, honest broker of the truth, heat shield, uh, an executioner on the, on the strategy, on the agenda, telling the president what he doesn't want it, want to hear. In your research, have you found that there are certain stylistic uh, characteristics that are common from chief of staff to chief of staff? Or let's put it this way, those who are more successful. 
Well, I think they all have their own styles. Um, I think that Haldeman and Sununu and some others were regarded as the uh, the SOBs, mm-hmm. quote unquote SOBs. Um, I think Jim Baker and Leon Panetta proved that you don't have to be. Panetta was once described uh, to me as a, you know, an iron fist inside a velvet glove, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so stylistically, um, they they all have their own. They're all different, mm-hmm. but I do think that one thing that is true, and it's one of Jim Baker's favorite uh, sayings, is that the most important word in the title is staff, not chief. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, and chiefs of staff who forget that often meet untimely ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you one example, Don Regan, who succeeded Jim Baker as Ronald Reagan's White House chief of staff and who made the mistake of... Um, hanging up the phone mm-hmm. on Nancy Reagan. Oh, boy. Well, <clears throat> you know, as Jim Baker said, that's not just a firing offense. That may be a hanging offense. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he was gone within a week. Mm. All right. Just to follow up, I very much appreciate your point about style, because we would say that on the on the show, right, Mike, about many ways of, of demonstrating leadership style. How about the, the notion of complementary styles? So have you found that to be the case? So yeah, know. I think well, you know, the most important thing um, is really the relationship between the president and his chief. So every president is going to have a different relationship. Um, every president has different strengths, and so that that relationship, um, the, the, uh, you know, and per, in a perfect world, the White House chief complements mm-hmm. uh, the president in just in just the right way. So. I think that that's that's critical, and you know every every chief has to really mold himself to the president he serves. Um, so, you know, at the same time, being able to tell the president hard truths. Mm-hmm. So maybe one last one, and then I'll hand the baton back to Mike. So for our listeners who might aspire to become the next chief of staff, what? would you recommend? Well, I, I would say forget about it. <laughs> I would say, first of all, you don't want the job uh, because, as you know, Cheney blames the job for triggering his first heart attack. Yeah. Uh, Bill and, Daly got the shingles. Um, it's hmm. it's relentless. It's thankless. Uh, but seriously, there, I mean, there's there's no way to prepare for it. There's no finishing hmm. school. There's no graduate school. Um, the chief of staff, again, that that's choice is so dependent on uh, on the you know the president and his and his needs. It should be somebody that the president knows in general, because the president has to respect has to have respect for the chief. Um, but it shouldn't be someone who is too close mm-hmm. uh, too close a friend and they're and therefore unable to uh, speak truth to power. So. It's almost impossible to uh, <clears throat> to to aspire to the job or work your way up to it. It it either happens or it doesn't. Okay, so why do you think mm. anyone would want the job? Well, <clears throat> because it's mm. it's arguably the second most powerful job in government, yeah. as James A. Baker uh, mm-hmm. would put it. 
Uh, Dick Cheney uh, told me that the White House chief of staff has more power than the vice president. Mm -hmm. What Cheney doesn't often add is that that's true, except when Cheney was vice president. (laughs) Very good. Trying to disprove that statement. (laughs) That's very good. So it's a unique position (laughs) where you can really, you can really, you're the only other person in the room when, when decisions Mm -hmm. are made that change the course of history. Mm, Very good. Thank you. Chris, uh, kind of a heads up on where I'd like to go in just a couple of minutes. Anne and I would like to take you now in in three minutes. I got one more question about the book, but in about three minutes beyond the book into the current White House. So we'd like you to say a few words about uh, John Kelly, the current chief of staff. But before we get to that, I've got one final question. Looking back, we've already identified, you've identified the one or two people who you thought were best in class, James Baker among them. Um, as chief of staff. And in business courses that Ann and I teach, we often look at companies that have done very well and what we can learn from them, but we also have examples of companies that have done very poorly and often what they have done equally instructive if we don't exactly want to copy exactly what they've done. So naming names or maybe leaving the name off, but thinking about, in your opinion, having talked to them all, or study those that uh, had passed away, uh, who was the least effective chief of staff and why? Well, I've mentioned a couple of the great ones. Uh, Jim Baker, Leon Panetta, Dick Cheney, uh, who was 34 years old, was a, was a terrific mm-hmm. chief of staff. Ken Duberstein, um, Erskine Bowles, um, and uh, Dennis McDonough, I think were, were good ones. Um, hands down, I would say the least effective White House chief and a cautionary tale uh, was Donald Reagan. Uh, Jim Baker, after four years as as Ronald Reagan's White House chief, was burned out, uh, desperate to get out of the job, wanted to move on and and become a cabinet member, which he did. Uh, One day he walks into Don Reagan's office, the Treasury Secretary, and Reagan said, why don't we swap jobs? Jim. Hmm. Well, this turned out to be the most disastrous job swap in American political <laughs> history. Um, it's no coincidence that on Don Regan's watch, the Iran-Contra scandal erupted. In my opinion, it never would have happened on Jim Baker's watch. Um, hmm. As Peggy Noonan put it to me, the Reagan's uh, speechwriter, um, she said, you know, Jim Baker was a Texas lawyer. They don't do uh, Bibles baked in cakes. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the, you know, Regan was unsuited for the job because he was a he was a former co-chairman of Merrill Lynch. Not that there's anything yep. wrong with that, but he was arrogant. He was entitled. He was um, authoritarian. He was a person who thought that the most important word in the title was chief, Mm -hmm. not staff. And as I described before, he famously hung up the phone on Nancy Reagan and was gone a week later. But that's how consequential the job can be. Um, Iran-Contra probably wouldn't have happened on Jim Baker's watch. Hmm. Great. Chris, I'm going to remind listeners that I'm Mike Yusim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. Uh, we are talking with you, Chris Whipple, author of The Gatekeepers, 
And this is on Sirius XM Channel 111. If you've got a question, like to jump into the dialogue, we're open. Just give us a call, 844-WHARTON. That's us. So we're getting close to the end of our time, and I'm going to turn the baton here over to Anne, who's going to get us into the current White House. Yes. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. So we now help me make sure I'm right here. We've had two chief of staffs, Priebus That's correct. and yeah. then Kelly. Could, so just let's talk a little bit about Priebus first. So here's one of my, you were talking about New Year's resolutions. My, yes. My resolution is is going to be to try to be a little bit more kind to Reince Priebus. <laughs> hey. That's Kelly. a good preface. <laughs> I've, good. I've been tough on Reince, and, and the reason is that, you know, I think that Reince Priebus had obviously an enormous challenge. Um, this this may well have been mission impossible okay. uh, mm-hmm. under Donald Trump, um, and I think um, you know for for obvious reasons, this is somebody who uh, for whom discipline is anathema. So it's a very it was a very difficult challenge for Priebus, <clears throat> and you know. Donald Trump was accustomed to the his business model was the 26th floor of Trump Tower. Right. It was people coming and going, everybody with access, everybody coming in and schmoozing and and giving their opinions and and no chain of command and no one empowered. And at the end of the day, Reince Priebus made a lot of rookie mistakes, uh, including that executive order on immigration that right. was never vetted with the departments in charge of implementing it, which is White House chief malpractice. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> plenty of mistakes on Priebus's watch. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump failed to empower Priebus or give him the authority that he needed to do the job. Mm-hmm. So uh, that would that's my overall take on on Priebus. Okay, and then how about Kelly? Kelly is is fascinating because, you know, I think that at the end of the day, Donald Trump just didn't respect Reince Priebus in a mm-hmm. way that, that, that allowed him to be effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump absolutely respects John Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody, a very senior person in the White House put it to me, um, John Kelly is the person Fred Trump is the son Fred Trump wishes he had. (laughs) This is a guy who he's Gary Cooper, just the facts, you know, Mm -hmm. straight shooter, somebody who commands a room and certainly commands Donald Trump's respect. He is he has succeeded in making the White House um, a much more disciplined operation. The the Oval Office door is closed most of the time. Uh, he really has made the trains run on time in the West Wing. But that is the easy part. Mm. The hard part is walking into the Oval Office, closing the door, and telling Donald Trump what he does not want to hear. And quite frankly, uh, John Kelly, I think there was an expectation that he would be the kind of non-ideological grown-up in the room who would... <clears throat> excuse me, take the, you know, to try to soften the ex- excesses of Donald Trump. Well, maybe not so much. I mean, look at Charlottesville. Look mm. at uh, his, his, Kelly's inability to discipline Trump when it comes to these unhinged Twitter tirades that Trump continues to go on. 
not only against Kim Jong-un, which which right. is obviously a, a very serious and dangerous right. kind of indiscipline, but look at uh, the tweets against Kirsten uh, Gillibrand. Um, Kelly's failed in that respect to tell Donald Trump hard truths, and or 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 else Donald Trump has simply ignored him. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a that's a serious blemish. Um, on John Kelly's uh, tenure. Great. Chris, Thank you. Uh, staying on that for a minute more, John Kelly, a huge improvement in bringing order to the White House, to the Oval Office. And again, as you've thought about these uh, 17 chiefs of staff, it's not, of course, just the president who picks a person to take the role. There's probably a lot of backroom discussion, a lot of um, influence uh, directed at the president on, as to who to pick. Do you have any sense for how the president or why the president picked John Kelly? You know, um, I think that we all know that Donald Trump has uh, respect for generals. Mm-hmm. Um, that he that he he likes generals. Um, maybe this goes all the way back to his experience at uh, military academy when he was uh, when he was young mm. um, there's no question about the fact that um, Kelly was just somebody that Trump from what I can gather from my reporting um, inside the White House uh, Kelly was somebody that Trump wanted and um, there was certainly input input from uh, advisors and friends but at the end of the day, I think this was the guy Trump wanted. Got a final question for me, and then one final one for Anne. We're going to sum up. Uh, James Baker, you've identified as one of the best in breed uh, as a chief of staff for President Reagan. And I think implicit in that statement, or certainly in the chapter of your book, James Baker believed in the president's agenda. And it was a personal passion of his own trying to bring that agenda to life. And of course, debates are out there now about people going into the Trump administration who don't believe necessarily in some of the agenda items. For John Kelly to serve effectively, does he really have to be drawn to the president's <clears throat> purpose, his agenda, his strategy, and his vision? What do you think? I think the answer is no. I think that the best chiefs of staff are the so-called honest brokers. Hmm. Uh, and Dick Cheney is a great example of that. Dick Cheney, when he was Gerald Ford's 34-year-old White House Chief of Staff back in 1975, was a guy who was described as, as then as now as someone who was to the right of Genghis Khan. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> you never would have known it when he was White House Chief of Staff because Cheney was a guy who, who didn't press his own agenda. Uh, he didn't have an axe to grind. He he was he took the job as White House chief seriously, and he was he was really an honest broker. And I think that's the way uh, an effective White House chief has to be. Um, you still have to have, but you have to also have political savvy. And Jim Baker had that in spades, and, mm. and so did Dick Cheney. And it's not at all clear that John Kelly does. I mean. He was politically out of his depth when he took the podium in the White House press briefing room and went on that unhinged attack on Representative Wilson and got all of his facts wrong. 
that was just somebody who was politically out of his depth. I think that this tax cut package could very well be something that ends up being perceived where a win is a loss, where this tax cut package uh, turns out to be perceived as a betrayal of the middle class voters who who put Trump in office. Uh, And, you know, Kelly has to be the guy who walks into the Oval, closes the door and says to Donald Trump, you know what, I know you need a win here, but this win could very well come back to bite you. Very good. So really short then, when you say political savvy, that's really what you mean in this case. And would he have the courage to say that? Yeah, I think that, um, well, it's two two different things, political savvy, of course, and the courage to say it. But, yes. But I think that those are, you know, it's a, it's an unbelievably uh, diverse skill set. I mean, the that, that that an effective White House chief has to have, and it's uh, it's a tall order. Um, Kelly seems to have the the courage and the you know mm-hmm. the, the gravitas and 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 all the rest. It's not at all clear that he has the political savvy uh, to to be a, a Jim Baker or a Leon Panetta. Um, the jury's out, but um, and and. Sadly, so far, he, he does not seem to have the, uh, the ability to confront Donald Trump and tell him hard truths when, uh, when Trump goes off on these unhinged uh, tirades that are uh, dangerous uh, to national security and, and harmful to his agenda. Chris, you know a lot about television. You at one point were a producer for 60 Minutes. You've done um, um, also ABC News. And with uh, literally 30 seconds to go, a final thought about what you learned from the book, The Gatekeepers. My final thought, I guess, would be it's just it's stunning to me um, that, you know, as I say, in, 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 in Hollywood, nobody knows anything, but in Washington, Evidently, nobody learns anything. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, presidents make the same mistake. They come into office full of hubris, thinking that they have all the answers, thinking that governing is the same as campaigning. It never ends well. And so far, there's no sign that Donald Trump has learned that lesson. Chris, thank you on that. Thank you yes, for joining us you. this evening. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, Chris Whipple, author of The Gatekeepers. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Don't touch the dial or the (laughs) button on the dial, everybody. After a short break, we'll be talking with Dr. Dan Fabricant, president and CEO of the Natural Products Association. Of course, you're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Come back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.